Father, the fellowship that we can have through Jesus Christ is a blessing to us all each and every day. Father, we recognize that many come with various trials and tribulations that have been uh, causing difficulties, and yet, Lord, in the fellowship that we have together, we can share with one another and be an encouragement to, to one another, and I trust that that will be true, that we'll truly seek ways to, to minister to each other. Lord, I pray that you will bless us now this morning as we fellowship around your word. Again, we ask that your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds and give us understanding of the truth that we discover here in, in this passage. And Lord, we ask that uh, as we read in James, that we will not just be hearers of the word, but we will be, be doers also. So guide us and give us wisdom, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. God had made wonderful promises to Abram, and you remember we read in the beginning of chapter 12 of Genesis about those promises. And then God gave to Abram a glorious victory, and we read about that in chapter 14. As he defeated the forces of Chedorlaomer with the strength of the Lord and then had that wonderfully pictured encounter with Melchizedek. Now, Abram was well up in years, as we're going to discover uh, a little bit later on, not in this passage or this day, but in the next chapter or so, it tells us that uh, Abram was in his mid-80s. At this time, of course, we have to assume he's in his earlier 80s. So he has lived, in this case, really already half of his life. But God is long ways from finished with him which is quite clear from the many chapters yet dedicated to Abram. And we come to this dramatic vision that we've been looking at for the past two Sundays recorded in chapter 15. Here we found, as the emphasis was made last week, the first straightforward, clear statement of the doctrine of justification by faith. The 15th chapter, the 6th verse, Then he, that is Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, that is God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. And we spent some time last week focusing upon that truth. Thus, Abram became for us the archetype, as Paul implied in Galatians 3.9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abram the believer. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 15, God goes on to validate his covenant. Notice, as, as we go through these chapters, how many times God comes back, restates his promise, and then goes a little bit further in giving enlightenment as to what that promise really meant. And that's what the scripture does, beginning with Genesis all the way through Revelation. God further enlightens us as to understanding of what he is as God, what we are is as his people and what the future is to be for this planet and for us as individuals. Verse 7, Genesis 15. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a, th bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down in the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. God is here, of course, reminding Abram, Abram of the fact that he had brought him out of Ur. Seems like weeks and weeks and weeks ago that we talked about that. The great city of Ur, capital of, of a great empire, out of which Abram came and God led him through his father Terah all the way up to Haran, which is located in modern-day Syria, the, the land of, of Paden Aram, land of the Arameans in those days. And then ultimately, after the death of Terah, God led him down into Canaan. And we read the rather disturbing account of uh, Abram's folly down in Egypt. And yet, through it all, we see God's faithfulness 
don't we? <coughs> and God says, I am the one who brought you here into Canaan to give you this land for a possession. But you'll notice that Abram responds to God upon this reminder. And, he, and the question that was in his heart was, how may I know that I shall possess it? Now, we have read various passages, you have read various passages in Scripture which say or teach us that sometimes people question God and it expresses doubt, such as when John uh, the Baptist was prophesied, you know, the prophecy came to Zechariah there in the temple from the angel that, that John the Baptist would be born and Zechariah expressed such doubt that God caused him to be dumb, unable to speak. Uh, until the baby was born. And yet in this passage, there is no such uh, implication. It seems that he is not expressing basic doubt here. He is simply asking God, how, well, how is it actually going to come about? What are the steps that you're going to use to, to bring this about in my life? God responds by giving to him the, the uh, event which we read in these next few verses. Now remember, this whole chapter is probably a vision. Or it may, as we noted uh, last time, be sort of a live-action vision. You know, a vision, and then Abram is actually carrying out physical factors that we could have observed ourselves had we been there. Either case, this, this basically is a vision. And God gives to him this covenant-sealing ceremony that we've read about in these few verses here. Now, it was the custom of that particular day, whenever a treaty was signed, for the two sides in the treaty to divide a sacrificial animal in half and separate the two halves, and then the two principles to pass between the halves as a seal before God that this is a genuine treaty to which both sides will adhere from that point on. Sort of a promise, a, a swearing if you will. This act bound both parties to that particular treaty as seen by Almighty God. Well, God, you'll notice in this uh, particular passage, redoubles it by not only having him sacrifice or cut in half or in the vision cuts in half a heifer, but also female goat, a ram, birds. I mean, all the basic acceptable sacrificial animals are used, which is a reinforcement, you might say, of what this ceremony is to mean. Now, the description that we read in verses 9 to 11 of this particular passage illustrates at least three points I'd like to make here. I think one of the very important points is that salvation is costly. Sometimes that doesn't really impact us as it needs to. As we walk on in the Christian life, we sometimes almost become, hopefully not, but certainly there's a temptation to become a little bit flippant about the whole thing. And this seems to show up in some of the songs that we sing from time to time, where we, we just kind of flippantly sing about God and Jesus as if uh, you know, he were some, some person just standing around who just happened to be a buddy. You know, you can throw your arm around. And yes, Jesus is our friend, but he's almighty God. And sometimes we, we tend to lose the awe of it all. Salvation is extremely expensive. We're told in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And that's where uh, many branches of the church have gone so wrong today. They want a blood-free salvation. They want a salvation that just comes on the basis of I'm a good guy and God's a good God and so we ought to get along just fine together. Rather than realizing that we are heinously evil. And even the best of us is, is, is sick with sin. And we need that cleansing. We need that forgiveness that comes through the blood of Christ. The sacrificial animals which were sacrificed by the, uh, the ancients as we read about it in the Old Testament those were symbols. The blood of those animals was symbolic of the priceless blood of God's own Son. Secondly, I think we find in this particular passage a reference to delayed fulfillment. The fact that nothing happens until sunset. 
this, this whole vision goes on and the sacrifices are laid out there, but, but nothing happens for a long time. And the sun goes down, and, and it's not until sunset that something begins to happen. And it seems to indicate that the promise that God has made is not going to be fulfilled right away. It's going to be on down the line that the fulfillment will come. Abram, in his lifetime, would not see his descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens, would he? That would be something he would have to die believing that the promise of God would become true and that through Isaac and then through Jacob and the others that would come, ultimately the vision, the promise would be a reality, but he would not see it in the flesh himself. And so it was a delayed fulfillment. Thirdly, we have this account of the scavenger birds. It doesn't tell us what kind they were. Vultures or something that, that came down in the vision on these sacrificial animals. And I really think that this symbolizes the effort of Satan to hinder the work of God. The effort of Satan to, to stop the covenant between us and God or to, to uh, cause it to cease to be real in our minds and in our hearts. Satan is constantly working through the world, the flesh, and his own minions to tear us down, to lead us away from the path that God has set us upon, to prevent us from trusting in the fullness of the covenant that we have in Christ, to experience the fullness of joy that comes through what Jesus Christ has done in our hearts, in our lives. We must do as Abram did in this vision. We must drive off these, quote, scavenger birds. What does that mean? It means, that, as the scripture teaches us, that we must be alert to the work of the enemy. Over and over again, we're told in scripture and, and the passage we've read so many times and heard so many sermons on, Paul tells us that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but our wrestling is with principalities and powers, the evil forces of the darkness of this world are at work. And when that conflict comes along between you and your roommate or you and your husband or wife, you and your, your boss or your employees or whatever, that behind that conflict is the work of the enemy. It's not just a flesh and blood thing. It's not just a clash of personalities. The enemy is using this situation to try to drive a wedge between us and God. So what can we do about it? Well, the passage that so often comes to my mind is the First Peter passage. And I think this is a really important passage for us to always have on the edge of our tongues, in the corner of our mind, uh, whatever the situation might be. First Peter, chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. It begins with two extremely important words. Two words without which there's no way you and I are going to be able to grow in God or be what God expects us to be. It says, humble yourselves. We've got to recognize who we really are before the Lord. We are unworthy of all that He has done. He has done it out of His mercy, not out of our worthiness. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time casting your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But the key comes next. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Notice, after you have suffered for a little while. There are some who would tell us that in the Christian life there should be no <coughs> suffering. It should all be just a nice, smooth, straight road with no bumps, no potholes, no deviations that we should all be healthy and wealthy and wise. And if we're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, there's something wrong with our faith, something wrong with our relationship with God. But it says, after you have suffered for a little while, 
Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. We're going to have a difficult time. But in it all, there is to be joy and peace and contentment because we know who our God is and we know who we are in our relationship to Him. And that's what God is doing here for Abram. He's helping him to know where he stands in his relationship with God. I have made this covenant with you and you are going to be the father of many nations. Out of you will come ultimately Messiah. What a blessing. It had to be for this man, Abram. And in it all, we need to see the truth as it applies to us today. The scavenger birds are there. They're coming all the time in an attempt to, to steal our blessing, to weaken our faith, to cause us to be unusable in God's hands because we doubt, because we're in depression, because... Uh, we're blaming somebody else for our problems rather than recognizing that God wants us to be of sober spirit and resist the enemy because as we do so, he must flee. Scripture promises that to be true. Let's go back to Genesis 15 and read the next few verses beginning at verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age." Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite the Kenzanite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Gerishite, and the Jebusite. All the land that belonged to those people. This would be the possession of Abram's descendants. Seemed like hours, I'm sure, to Abram in this vision or in this live-action vision, whatever it was. But finally he fell into a deep sleep. The scripture tells us that a terrible darkness came upon him. And God told him what this darkness was all about. This darkness was a symbol of the terrible trial that was going to come upon these descendants that he was going to be given. He had been promised that his, his descendants would be as the stars of the heaven, and yet those descendants were not going to, to make it through life without a difficult time coming, not only individually, but corporately as a nation. A terrible, terrible darkness. 400 years they were going to be enslaved in Egypt. A four-century eclipse of the nation, if you will, a, a dark age for that particular people, the Israelites. But God brightened the picture, as he always does. He tells us, right, that in this life you will have trials but he also tells us to, to, to strengthen our faith in him because he will go with us even to the end of the age. He will be a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet, or the other way around, whichever way the verse goes. Notice that several important factors are mentioned here which brightens this darkness. First, God says that he would judge Egypt. He was going to judge Egypt for the oppression of the Hebrew nation that had gone on for those many centuries. And you and I know that that judgment at least came in part through the 12 great plagues that fell on the land of Egypt. You know, sometimes we read through that passage, we don't realize how much that nation was impacted. I would, you know, it would be interesting to know if you could have had a census of the number of Egyptians, the number of animals, the economy of Egypt before the plagues, and then had a census afterwards and seen what that had done. The implication was that there was a mass wiping out of the economy 
I mean, the animals died all over the place and the crops were destroyed and the people even died by the thousands. What a judgment upon a land. Other lands, of course, have experienced similar judgments, haven't they? Down through the course of history. God brought Assyria upon Israel as a whip, as a scourge, and yet God held Assyria responsible for how they carried out God's judgment. And God brought a great judgment upon the land of Assyria, and woe unto Nineveh, the prophet said, and the city of Nineveh fell before the hordes of the enemy. And God did the same thing to Babylon. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar said, isn't this great Babylon which I have built? And God struck him, and he became a cow in his own mind, you know. He had bovinitis or something, and he went out there and ate grass for seven years. And even though he came back to become a great king, uh, his kingdom was, was soon to be destroyed, and there would be the handwriting on the wall that said, you know, meany, meany, tiku, farsen, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Tonight this kingdom will be taken from you. And so it was by the Medes and the Persians. And so it would be, down through history, God brings judgment upon those nations that do not walk in his ways. And that's why we need to pray desperately for our nation, that God will send a mighty revival across this land. Because the way we're headed, we're headed down a long tunnel of darkness, unless God moves. Secondly, God told him that the Hebrew nation would leave that land with great possessions, let me turn to Exodus chapter 12 and read a couple of verses here that illustrate this, verses 35 and 36. Exodus 12, 35 and 36. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of, the, of Moses, for they requested from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So not only was much destroyed, but the Israelites carried off a great amount of the wealth of the land. And this became the core of the wealth that Israel would have as they would ultimately build a tabernacle and carry that around with them through the wilderness. And, and then as they would penetrate the land under Joshua and begin to carry out the promise that God had originally made to Abram. Thirdly, the promise in this uh, passage includes that Abram would have peaceful longevity. Isn't that a wonderful promise? <laughs> I'm going to give you peaceful longevity. You're going to live a long time and it's going to be peaceful. Whoa. Such a promise. Was it, was it true? Well, if God said it, right? It has to be true. Uh, Genesis chapter 25, verses 7 and 8 say, and these are all the years of Abram's life that he lived, 175 years. And Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age. Notice this phrase, an old man and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. Was he satisfied with life because everything went wonderfully? No. No was satisfied with life because his faith was in God. I and mean, we can die the same way. We can die satisfied with life or we can die dissatisfied with life, right? We can end up going to the grave bitter because of the troubles we've had in this life. Woe is me, you know. We can have that kind of an attitude. I'm, I'm, I'm suffering so terribly. You know, every once in a while I get bothered by, again, <laughs> some of the music we sing these days, which tells, says, God, give me this, and God, give me that, and God, give me something else, and just give, 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 rather than saying, God, we're so grateful for what we have. You have blessed us all around with so many wonderful things. Yes, there are difficulties in life. Sometimes it seems like it doesn't rain, it pours on us, not fortunately outside, but, but in our you know, in the problems that we face, and yet in it all, God is faithful. I mean, all we have to do is compare ourselves with Job, and very few of us can ever say that we've gone through trials as Job did. But hopefully we, hopefully we can always say, as Job did, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Because that's the bottom line. And that was the bottom line with Abraham. He had a lot of problems. I mean, we're going to see later on, Sarah dies, and, and, and that was a great tragedy for him. 
And uh, he marries another lady, and, and by her he has six more sons. And some of those sons turn out to be leaders of nations who turn out to be enemies of Israel. I'm sure he didn't like the way all those sons were turning out. And, and yet, it says he died satisfied with life. That God had blessed him with 175 years. Most of us, I'm not sure, would consider it a blessing if we had to live 175 years nowadays <laughs> with the way things are going. Even though it might be nice to, to see or, you know, to, to know if God is, if Jesus is going to actually return in the next uh, 100 years or however many in addition to what we have now would make 175 for us. I won't ask each individual. But... Uh, then in this passage, it also tells us that it implies, at least, that there was going to be longevity in the patriarchal line. This seems to be inferred by the statement where it says, in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Now think about it for a minute. They're going to be in captivity for 400 years, but in the fourth generation, they'll return. <laughs> that implies that the, some of the oldest men who came out of Egypt in the Exodus their great-great-grandfathers went into Egypt with the 70. Went in with Jacob and <coughs> Joseph and those. Which means it seems that each generation had to be pretty long for it to only be four generations to cover a 400-year period. That implies, I think, what this implies is longevity. I mean, after all, if Abram lived 175 years... Uh, we, we find out that Isaac lived 180 years, and Jacob lived, uh, what was it, 147 or something like that. I mean, we're talking about still quite long, long lives compared to what we're accustomed to today. And then lastly, and this is really, I think, a, a key factor here in understanding God's view of the human race and of history and God's foreknowledge. The iniquity of the Amorites in Canaan was a great stench in the nostrils of God. But he demonstrates great patience here because he says, I'm going to give them 400 more years. Why? 400 more years either to turn from their ways and turn to the true and living God or to absolutely confirm their rejection of him in, in generation after generation as the whole race of people would become more and more godless as they went their ways. And of course, the implication is when, it, when, when he says there, let me get back to that, in verse 16, and then the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. This implies God's foreknowledge knowing that they will not turn, they will go on in their evil ways, and thus they will ultimately be destroyed. They would be judged. Was this to happen? Well, we know it will, would. Let's look at Leviticus, or I will at least turn to Leviticus chapter 18. Read a couple of verses there. 24. Leviticus 18, 24. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have visited its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do as any of these shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land may not spew you out, should you defile it, as it spewed out all the nations, out the nation which has been before you. And then in Joshua, we have the reference to how it really happened, Joshua chapter 24, reading at verse 8, Joshua 24, 8. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who live beyond the Jordan, and they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, 
and you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. And this, of course, is referring to the Transjordanian area. Verse 11, And you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Girgashite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. And I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and the cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. God, you see, had gone before the Israelites with the, quote, hornet, meaning the panic, the fear that God sent ahead to the Canaanites of the coming of God's people. And if you remember reading the accounts, the people were so fearful when they heard of what happened when Israel miraculously crossed the Jordan at flood time and the walls of Jericho came crashing down that the Gibeonites came and said, oh, we've come from far, far away. We've heard a lot about you. And look at our old clothes. Look at our old bread. Look at our stale wine. And through all of this, you know we're from far away. And we want to make a treaty with you. And Joshua, without going to the Lord, goes ahead and makes a treaty and finds out they're the next city along they're supposed to take. You know? Why? Because they were fearful. And because they made that promise, the Gibeonites were allowed to stay in their midst, but God said they will be water carriers and wood hewers for you. Thus they became slaves within the land of Israel. But the nations were to be destroyed. And why was it they fell so easily? Why was the, the um, <coughs> what do you call it, the coalition of the forces of southern Israel, Canaan, so easily overwhelmed by Joshua? Then the coalition of the north overwhelmed. I mean, kingdoms all joined together against these these, these shepherds, and, and yet they were destroyed. Why? Because the fear of God was in their hearts, not the faith, fear of God that produced faith, but the fear which caused them to melt in the face of God's army. Now, whether in the vision or consciously, Abram awoke. He saw the fire of God's presence pass between the pieces of the sacrifice. What did this signify? This signified God's unilateral sealing of the covenant. We do not see Abram's passing through between the pieces. God alone sent his fire between the pieces of the animal. And what this did, of course, God, uh, Abram had asked for a sign. Oh God, how shall I know that I will possess it? And so... God in his mercy gave him this powerful vision of a covenant. Of a covenant that was proclaimed and then ratified by God alone. Without Abram taking active part, he simply was an observer to what had taken place. He was not required to make any commitments. He was not required to, make any, or to take any action. You see, he had already made the commitment. As we read back in the sixth verse, he believed God. And God counted it unto him as righteousness. And thus God sealed the covenant with this man. Now, what does this tell us? This, I believe, is a foreshadowing of the new covenant. Before the foundation of the world, the scripture teaches us, God had unilaterally proclaimed that his son would come and die for the sin of this creation of mankind that God had established on the earth. Christ would give his life as an atonement for sin while we were yet sinners, the scripture teaches us. That itself is such a powerful statement as to why it does no good for us to try to clean up our act before we come to God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till the world got nice. I mean, you think, I mean, some people might think, I'm sure you don't, some people might think that, well, the world had to get into a, a really good state in order for Christ to come into the world. Well, if you know anything about the history of the Roman Empire, it was no good state. The conditions were pretty raunchy. Uh, it, was a, 
it would get more vile maybe, but it was pretty vile in the days in which Christ was born. And of course, you've heard so many times the emphasis on the fact, and, and our pastor has been doing this in his preaching through Luke, the fact that Christ was not born in a palace. He was born in a stable. He was not born to, to the family uh, of Caesar, nor even to the family of Herod. He was born to uh, an unknown couple who lived in poverty, in Nazareth, out of which nobody knew any good thing to come. I mean, God seems to have picked the lowliest of the low for the condition out of which to bring his son. And that's one of the reasons, I believe, not the only reason by any means, but at least one of the reasons why people of the lowest classes tend to respond to the call of Jesus Christ because he was willing to be one of them and to associate with them. And ultimately, it's the, it's the people who, I mean, think of our own society. Most of us are familiar with, the blue, uh, with uh, gospel, Negro gospel music, right? And, and the blacks sung these songs of faith because they were the lowest of the low. They were slaves in the land. And they reached out to him. I'm sure not every one of them in true faith, but many, many of them did. Because he was their only hope. There was no hope in this life. Their only hope was in the next life. And so they really trusted in him. And if we really look at life the way it actually is, we would all recognize we are in that same condition. We may have sufficient income. We may be, quote, free. But really, we're in the flesh. Before we know the Lord, we're no better off than a slave. Because we are slaves to sin, the Scripture teaches us. And Paul just drives that point home in Romans and in the prison epistles, how we're slaves to sin until Christ comes and frees us. And so we have Abram here seeing this, this freedom being born for him and his descendants. And I think it's always important for us to remember that God did this unilaterally. We in no way helped bring about the covenant, the new or the old. It was God's doing. Now in verses 18 to 20 of this particular passage in Genesis 15, we have the record of God's elaboration on what was to be the extent, the physical extent of the promised land. He said it was to stretch from the river of Egypt to the river, the great river, Euphrates. That was to be the promised land, from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. Now it seems quite clear what the northern border was the Euphrates. Uh, there's really uh, no way to confuse that because throughout the Old Testament, the great river always meant the Euphrates. But the southern border is not nearly as clear because the question revolves around what is the meaning of the phrase river of Egypt? And I've put on your outline three possibilities that have been emphasized by various scholars down through time. One is that the reference is to the Shihor. Now the Shihor was the easternmost distributary of the Nile in the Delta. Most of us, I think, are familiar with, the, with, with Egypt, or at least with the map of Egypt. And you know that the Nile River wends its way north, and as it gets a little past Cairo, it, it spreads out into the delta. And so you have this triangular-shaped feature, which you can see both on maps and in satellite photographs, of, of the river spreading out and several distributaries like fingers going out to the Mediterranean Sea. It was the Greek uh, scholars having some kind of a understanding of this that brought the word delta into existence. The delta is what? Triangular in shape, right? And that's the shape of the Greek letter delta. And so that is how that particular term became applied, and we still use that particular phrase today. The easternmost distributary, the, the 
branch of the Nile as it spreads out into its delta, which flows furthest to the east, is called the Shihor. And some feel that that is the river Mint. But there is no passage in Scripture that confirms that Israel ever possessed the land to that particular spot. Unless, of course, the reference is to the time they lived in the land of Goshen while they were in captivity in, Israel, uh, in Egypt because they did live in the region of the Shihor. Secondly, and what is considered by most evangelical scholars as most likely, is it refers to what is called the Brook of Egypt, the Wadi al-Arish. This is a brook which drains the Negev. It flows more or less westward, somewhat northwestward, out of the Negev and flows out to the sea at approximately five miles south of the town of Gaza. Now, it is called a wadi because that's the Arabic word for a river canyon, an arroyo, which is not maintained by a perennial stream. In other words, the water flows through it intermittently. When it rains, there's water. When it doesn't rain, it's dry. So it's called a wadi uh, in Arabic. Now, what's favorable to this view is that if you study the geography of the land, you'll discover that the land is pretty arable down to that particular brook, wadi. But when you cross the other side of the wadi and begin to move towards the west side, across the top of the Sinai, it becomes very arid and, and a bleak land. We know that Israel occupied the land that far. We know that under David and Solomon, they possessed the land at least to the Wadi al-Arish. And we also know that during that time, at least part of the time, they possessed the territory up to the Euphrates River. Let me read you two verses. One from 1 Chronicles, chapter 18, verse 3. This is referring to David at the time he's expanding his empire. David also defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, and he went to establish, as he went to establish his rule to the Euphrates River. Okay, that's during David's time. Okay, then 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 21. 1 Kings 4:21. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And best as the historical geographers have been able to determine, the border of Egypt at that time was the Wadi al-Arish. The third possibility that some adhere to is that the reference is clearly to the Nile. Not to some distributary of it, but basically to the Nile the whole system of the Nile, at least in its southern reaches. If that is true, then either one of two other things is true. First of all, that was the promise, that was the intent, but Israel never experienced it because of their lack of faithfulness and obedience. Therefore, they never inhabited their whole inheritance. Now, we can understand this, and, and we can see how this could be true. Because... Christ said that he came that we might have life and that we might have what kind of life? Life more abundantly, right? And yet, you look around at many Christians and maybe even at your own life and it seems that we often live short of that abundant life. We live a life that's chaotic. We live a life we're uptight. We're, we're living a life that's in conflict or, you know, things are happening which we just never really seem to get it together. Sometimes it's because we don't have the faith we should have in what God has done or we don't understand what God has done. We don't apply what God has said. Sometimes it's because there's disobedience in our life. But we often live on the edge of the promised land of, of the abundant life. Now, we have to understand, of course, the abundant life doesn't mean it's abundant with all kinds of physical things. It doesn't mean it's abundant with material things. It's abundant with peace and joy and the things that God has promised to come our way, contentment and wisdom. But sometimes we don't even experience that. 
Sometimes we unnecessarily, un- unnecessarily live in want. In, we live in fear. We live in anxiety. Because we've never really entered the promised land and claimed all that God has given to us spiritually. So this may be the case. This was the promise. This is what God said they would have, but they never experienced it because they were too faithless to actually receive all that God had promised. Secondly, and what uh, many eschatologists or those who really are into end times uh, things like to say is that the promise will be fulfilled in the end times when Jesus Christ comes to rule and reign on this planet that at that time Jerusalem will be his his throne and Israel will stretch from Egypt to Syria. And inclusive of those territories, all of this will be brought under. And there are passages which tell us something about them coming from Egypt to worship the king and coming from Assyria to worship the king there in Jerusalem, the Messiah. Is that what this means? Well, it's possible. If you remember back to the days of the Yom Kippur War in the early 70s, Israel was on the, on the verge of actually possessing that land at that time. The Israeli tanks were on the other side of the Suez Canal. They were rolling towards Cairo. They were across the Golan Heights and they were rolling towards Damascus when the international community panicked and blew the whistle and said, stop. You know, they were afraid Israel would overtake these two nations and they might bring peace and that would not be desirable. <laughs> So the international community says, stop, don't do this. Well, you'll notice at the end of the passage in uh, Genesis 15 that uh, God lists the names of the peoples who would be in the land at the time of the conquest. Let me just quickly run through these as we come to the end of the chapter. He refers to the Kenites. The term means smith. Apparently, they were workers of ores down in the Gulf of Aqaba region, probably copper ores uh, in that particular area. And and they were affiliated with the Midianites because the scripture tells us that Moses married Zipporah, who was a Kenite. So Moses' wife was a Kenite, which means his kids were half Kenite and half Hebrew. Secondly, we have the Kenzanites. No, Kenizzites. <laughs> Kenizzites. There we go. Uh, these were tribes living in the Negev, and they apparently uh, were affiliated with the Edomites and eventually absorbed into the Edomite nation. Then we have the Cadmonites. Uh, this name apparently meant Easterners and seems to refer to tribes that lived on the east side of the Jordan River in what is today the nation of Jordan. The Hittites, now the the name Hittites is much more difficult to deal with because we know who the Hittites were in general. We knew they were a mighty kingdom. The Hittites established a powerful kingdom up in what is today Turkey. And for uh, 600 years, they had a powerful kingdom centered on their capital at Hattusis. And they were the great iron-using people who introduced the forging of iron to much of the rest of the Middle East, and iron tools and iron weapons were brought. And uh, they were a powerful nation, but the question is, who were these Hittites referred to here? Were they uh, colonizers who came out of that kingdom and were settled down here? Or were they sort of like distant cousins? Or, you know, exactly who they were is not certain, but apparently they were somehow related to the Indo-Europeans called the Hittites. Then there were the Perizzites, and all we really know about them were that they were village dwellers who lived up in the uh, hill country of Ephraim, which would be north of Jerusalem uh, in that particular area, an area which in those days was forested. But if you've been over to Israel, you know it's not forested today. hasn't been forested for a long time. Then we have the term the Rephaim, uh, this, this particular term is a little more enigmatic than most of the rest of them. Uh, they apparently were widely scattered people who <coughs> were producers of giants. Uh, some even think maybe the term Rephaim simply refers to the giants themselves. But people who are of abnormal size, such as Goliath, who came along later. The Amorite, again a generic term. 
the Amorites were a Semitic people who lived in Babylonia at the time of Abraham. And they would establish the, the old kingdom of Babylonia. In fact, um, um, Hammurabi, uh, the great king of the 18th century, was an Amorite. But as we understand the term here, it seems that it's more referring to a tribal uh, people who lived further to the west, largely in Syria and in Canaan, who were involved in international trade. In fact, their language became uh, a wide, widely used language. And uh, sometimes the term Amorite, well, it is used that way in verse 16. In the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. He's not just talking about the Amorite in this list down here. He's using the word Amorite generically to refer to all of the pagan non-Hebrew peoples living in Canaan. So Amorite referred to a specific people, but was also generically used of the broader people. And so was the term Canaanite, which is the next one there. Now, the term Canaanite literally referred to the Hamitic peoples who lived in northern Canaan and in Phoenicia. And, and the Canaanite peoples would ultimately uh, spread out across the Mediterranean and they would establish a wonder, uh, not wonderful, but a powerful kingdom at um, Carthage. And the Carthaginian Empire would be the great rival of Rome in the third and second centuries BC. Uh, that would be the height of, of Canaanite uh, power. But as far as Israel was concerned, these were a people who lived mostly in the north and would be a, a, a tremendous challenge, particularly in the days of Deborah and Barak. Then you have the Girgashites, who were apparently somehow related to the Canaanites living in northern Canaan. And then we have the Jebusites. The Jebusites, interesting people, because they would stick around until the days of David. And David would capture the Jebusite capital city, which was Jebus, which he would call the city of David, and we would know as the city of Jerusalem. And so we come to the end of chapter 15. And next week we'll begin on chapter 16. Alan. I think so. It's what it seems to imply. It's hard to know for sure, but it seems that they were split, except for the birds. Well, <laughs> if God does it, it's one thing. As the normal way it was practiced, it was pretty ugly. For, from our point of view, it would be ugly. But see, if you were born and raised and were accustomed to that all the time, it wouldn't bother you. But most of us not being butchers, <laughs> uh, it, would, it would look pretty ugly to us. Be bloody. Yeah. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And I think the whole picture of having bloody sacrifices, and we, we read about, we just wonder when, when this Temple of Solomon was dedicated and they sacrificed thousands and thousands and thousands of animals and the blood flowed in rivers, you'd think that that would be ugly and awful. But God intended it to be that way. For us to understand how awful sin is. Sin is not pretty. And sin is not something to take lightly. It's, it's ugly. And it takes this, this ugliness to, to bring it home to us, I think. Sometimes we have a kind of a bloodless Christ on the cross, too. We don't realize how, how ugly and, and awful crucifixion really was and how forsaken the one crucified was hanging outside the city on the cross.